Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the PQI podcast. This week, we sit down with Dr. Kyle Bradford-Jones to discuss his book, Fallible, a memoir of a young physician's struggle with mental illness. Dr. Jones is an associate clinical professor in family and preventative medicine at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He works in the Neurobehavior Home Program, a clinical program for individuals with a developmental disability, where he leads the utilization management team. He is the author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Fallible, a memoir of a young physician's struggle with mental illness, and his most recent book, Hospital, a medical satire of unhealthy proportions, came out in December, 2022. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Jones, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. To start out, will you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background and your current role? Absolutely. I'm uh, Kyle Bradford Jones. I'm a family physician in Salt Lake City, Utah. I uh, am an associate professor at the University of Utah School of Medicine. So I do, I see patients, I work with medical students, I teach family medicine residents. I'm kind of all over the place. But uh, I have uh, a wonderful wife and four great kids, uh, two boys, two girls, and um, originally from Utah. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you invited me. Well, thank you. And that that's a beautiful place to live. I have to say, before I was staff at Encoda, we had a meeting there as a member um, a few years ago in Salt Lake City, and it was gorgeous. It and is, have, and the, all the mountains are covered with snow right now. It is quite pretty. Yes, the, the Florida landscape here is a little bit different, so. <laughs> and busy, busy with four kids, I'll say that too. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you are here today because you released a book in 2020 called Fallible, a memoir of a young physician's struggle with mental illness. So I read it and it was fabulous. I really enjoyed it, but I would love to get into some of the specifics about the book. Um, but will you first give us the premise of it and why you wrote it? Sure. Well, thank you for that. Um, about 2014 or so, uh, I started writing about my experiences with having depression and anxiety as a physician. And most of it was through blogs or uh, different avenues like that. And never really thought I would take it beyond that. And then um, I was on a podcast talking about it. It was my wife and I uh, talking about how it affects spouses. And afterwards, the host said, so when's the book coming out? What are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, you have to write a book about this. Like it's, it's needed. And, you know, it's a unique voice and everything. And I thought, yeah, sure. You know, I've always enjoyed writing and always had the, the idea and desire to write a book someday. But uh, so I thought, yeah, well, that sounds great. But it basically goes through uh, my life as a physician and dealing with clinical anxiety and depression. And they've come on at, at different times um, throughout my life, and but really kind of worsened and took a huge hit once I began my medical training, um, and something which is unfortunately all too common among physicians. Yes, yes, and I, I'd like to hear more about that. Um, 
And but first, the book journeys through your life on mission for your church, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then medical school and your residency. So I know you said everything kind of worsened during um, your medical training, but will you give us a brief overview of those times and when, how you came to the realization that you were suffering from anxiety and depression? Yeah, I was always somewhat of a high-strung kid and, and you know, it was just a personality trait. It wasn't anything clinical or, or a big deal. When I was 19, I spent two years in Ukraine um, as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And of course, you know, being that young and such a dramatic change, uh, that really kind of started to bring on a lot of anxiety. I put a lot of pressure on myself too. And it, I didn't recognize it as such. Um, I kind of had some physical symptoms, a lot of GI issues that came along with it. And it just kind of slowly progressed. And so when I was an undergrad and I was a pre-medical student and, you know, trying to get straight A's and prepare for the MCAT and do all the volunteering and trying to get a job so that I could afford to live and, you know, do research, all of these things. And one day it just came to a head and I had a panic attack. And it's often described as just this sense of impending doom. And that's exactly what it felt like. My heart was racing. I was dizzy. I was sweaty. I, it just felt like something really bad was happening and I was about to die. And I figured it was something with my heart. And so went to the doctor and did an evaluation and said, you know, I, I really think this is anxiety and thought, huh, well, that's interesting. I never thought of that. And you know, wasn't uh, upset or ashamed by it. It was just kind of, okay, well, what can we do about it then? Mm-hmm. And so since that time have been on uh, multiple different medications for anxiety, then throughout medical school, it worsened. And then once I began residency in family medicine, I really, that's kind of when the depression came on. Uh, it, all of the uh, lack of sleep and the pressures and uh, all the difficulties of being a physician and a physician in training really kind of added up and just kind of crushed me in some ways, you know, in, in one way to put it. And so uh, since then, you know, I've I've had to really focus on taking care of myself uh, so that those, so that when those tough days or tough weeks or tough experiences come back that they don't sink me or they don't overwhelm me too much, but then I am able to, to deal with them. Yes. Yes. And I know you had a family during all of that time too. So I'm sure that that adds an extra layer. Um, and then you're just talking about going for that visit. I wonder, and you, you may know, cause you're a little bit more of an expert on this, but how many people go like to the ER every year thinking that they're having a heart attack and it turns out to be anxiety or a panic attack? You know, I don't have an exact number, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, because like you say, one of the biggest symptoms comes from your heart. And so you're thinking, boy, okay, something's really wrong. And it's tough because some people are really ashamed of that. There's kind of the ongoing stigma of mental illness. And it's almost like the 
the common refrain of, well, this is just all in my head, and I can't believe the doctor told me that. And, you know, I, I like to remind people that, um, no, the symptoms you're feeling are real. You know, they're not something that's made up or that your brain made up. It's just a matter of where it came from and what it, we can do to help alleviate them. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, just kind of approaching it like that, I feel like a lot of people are much better that, okay, you know, maybe maybe this is something that I can deal with and that is okay. Yes, for sure. And then the book touches on both burnout and depression. So what is the difference in these? Because I know we hear a lot about burnout, especially in healthcare in the last couple of years. Um, and is there any overlap in between the two? There is a lot of overlap. And sometimes it's hard to tell uh, exactly what's going on with with uh, burnout, it revolves around work um, primarily. And so it's the, the work that is the problem or your job or occupation or whatever. Whereas with depression, it's more your whole life. Um, with burnout, there are three main areas of exhaustion, cynicism and detachment, and a sense of ineffectiveness. And there is a lot of overlap with that in depression. The biggest thing that separates depression, one of the diagnostic criteria is what's called anhedonia, or where you just don't feel like doing any of the things that normally bring you pleasure. Um, and so, for example, with me, I'm a big baseball fan. So I love watching baseball, reading about it, talking about it. And there was a while during... Uh, my worst episodes of depression where baseball meant nothing to me. And that was completely out of ordinary for me and was one of the biggest signs that, Hey, no, this is, this is more than, than just being burned out of my job. This is something that's a lot more. Um, there are other diagnostic criteria for depression and things like it affects your sleep or um, it, it very commonly comes with feelings of guilt uh, concentration difficulties. Obviously, you can uh, feel suicidal. However, I do want to point out that suicide comes from despair. It doesn't necessarily come from mental illness. And so, uh, you know, you can be in any circumstance where you feel that ultimate despair and then become suicidal or attempt to, to kill yourself. Um, but really, I think the biggest thing for me that makes sense in my mind with burnout is it's almost where your desired or perceived identity in your occupation doesn't fit reality. And so, you know, in medicine, we so many people go into it with altruistic motivations and we want to help people and and do the best we can. We want to prolong life and help people have a better quality of life and things. Uh, and, but you also have a lot of limitations where you can't, you don't always have control over uh, health outcomes. And you have all of these external things such as, you know, administration, insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera, that put these external pressures on you that kind of control a lot of what you do. And so, you have that change in identity of, boy, I'm supposed to be an expert. I'm supposed to be the one 
who has been trained to help people medically. But what I, what seems to be the best route to go, I can't do it because of all these other factors. And so that very quickly leads to burnout um, and sometimes can move on towards depression where it's almost as though your, your body and your mind just can't cope any longer. Um, and so in that sense, there can be a bit of a continuum uh, from burnout to depression, though not always. That definitely makes sense. And I even think like on the pharmacy side, I could see that happening from the difference in school. And when you get to something like a retail pharmacy and you're working at Walgreens and your ideal of what you've learned in pharmacy school and what you're doing dispensing at Walgreens don't don't always match up exactly. Um, so I think that's pre prevalent everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also present startling statistics on the prevalence of mental illness in physicians and other medical professionals. So will you review some of those statistics with us and why you think the rates are so much higher in physicians? You know, it's interesting because, uh, so physicians are have rates of mental illness two to three times higher than the general population. And those numbers are increasing. We always kind of thought that was more of a recent thing, but looking back, it's actually been that way for a hundred years. Um, there's something about medicine that is more difficult. And certainly there are a lot of things. You're dealing with secondary trauma all the time. You're dealing with uh, moral injury, honestly, from some of the um, restrictions that we have on, our, on us. Um, and even though it's not explicitly stated, it's almost implicitly or implied that death is failure. And so we... Uh, I, I don't know if any of the listeners know this, but uh, mortality is 100%. <laughs> We're going to die, which means you're going to fail. If, if, you know, with that uh, kind of implicit um, uh, knowledge or what's taught. And so all of these things contribute so much to it. About one physician a day uh, dies by suicide. And those are just the numbers we have. We also know deaths by suicide are underreported. So it's actually probably a lot bigger than that. Um, you look at uh, medical trainees, one third of all residents have clinical depression and a quarter of them have had suicidal thoughts. When you look at med students, over 40% have clinical depression and 10% have had thoughts of suicide in the last two weeks. And you think of that and you're like, what in the world are we doing? <laughs> you it's know, why? it is when you're an intern, the first year out of medical school, on average, your DNA ages six times faster than other people your age. Um, it's just so much stress. And I think also goes back to that identity of I'm in this to do all of these great things that I think um, are needed for individuals, for society. I want to be part of the solution, but I'm very limited in my ability to do that. It's, um, it definitely, as I said, is, is startling and not, not good numbers that we have there. 
So with that, what are some of the negative outcomes to society um, of these medical professionals experiencing burnout? And even I know a lot of them are leaving the profession because of it. Mm -hmm. Especially after COVID. And I think we're seeing a lot of it right now in that uh, access to physicians is so much worse now than it was just a few years ago. Um, I so can many... attest to that personally. <laughs> it takes yeah. months, months to get in for a physical now. So Exactly. And obviously that has huge implications for our care, especially when uh, we have a lot of uh, medical issues or, or things that we need to get addressed. Um, and it's kind of across specialties. It's primary care. It's also many of the, the subspecialists. Um, and so that has potential huge ramifications for the health of society, of, of all of us individuals. Uh, but also, one physician leaving practice costs the community roughly a million dollars. And that's because of cost of training and um, you know, cost of, of losing that access to physicians and whatnot. And so there's a huge economic hit as well. And so it's, it's pretty scary. You know, there, there are wide ranging uh, difficulties that we need to watch out for and that hopefully we can remedy if we can keep more physicians practicing. Yes, that, that is a huge, a very substantial cost. Um, and then you also talk about medications in the book and the shame that often accompanies them as well as self-medicating through substance abuse. So will you elaborate on both of those points a little more? So as physicians, there's kind of that view of you as the, the hero that comes in to save the day. And, uh, you know, we're the, we're the cowboys is what's usually referred to. We come in and we know what to do and we're going to save this life and, and everything. And so if you are struggling it's as though you, almost as though you feel like you can't be a good physician. And so I, like I mentioned, I've been on medication for about 20 years now, um, multiple different ones, uh, and some that helped more than others, of course. And I've been uh, in therapy on and off during that time. Um, I have a therapist now. Um, and thankfully, I have, I think because I've been willing to undergo uh, medical treatment for this, I haven't turned to different substances um, uh, and abused them, but that is very common. Overcoming that stigma and being willing to do what you need to, to get yourself well uh, is huge. And of course, obviously I've been very open about uh, my experiences. It's not like you have to go tell everybody that, <laughs> hey, I'm on medication. Um, but uh, but it's important. And many physicians actually, only about a third of physicians with mental illness seek help. And one of the reasons is because they're worried about losing their license. Um, and uh, some states with the licensing questionnaires uh, include questions about uh, if you have a mental illness that um, is impairing uh, your ability to function. And so a lot of people are scared. Like if I'm on medication, I'm going to lose my license and I'm going to get in trouble with the medical board. And my perspective is actually the exact opposite. 
is you're more likely to get your license removed if you are not treating your mental illness. Because when you have depression or severe anxiety that you are not addressing, you see more mistakes uh, medically. You're more likely to have bad outcomes. You're more likely to be sued. And so it's really focusing on yourself and taking care of the patient to, uh, to basically keep your license, so to speak. Um, I don't feel that that's as big a concern as, as many physicians do. Yeah, I think it definitely, definitely makes sense. Um, and I also think you said, you don't have to tell everyone, but maybe if we did tell everyone, more people would feel comfortable getting the medications and getting the help. So I appreciate that you are so open about all of this. Um, and then how did you learn to personally cope with, and I know you've said therapy and medications, but I guess will you give us a little more detail on how you learn to cope with all of this? Obviously, there are a lot of the uh, well, common wellness things, whether it's yoga or mindfulness or exercise or things. I am I'm someone where I need something that will turn my mind off, so to speak, where I can just kind of go into autopilot. So I really like jigsaw puzzles because I get, it's almost like a Zen like thing for me um, where uh, it's just, I guess, get absorbed and, and it works great for me. Um, you know, there are, it's important. First of all, we always talk about everyone having a coping mechanism. It's actually important to have multiple coping mechanisms because for example, um, a lot of people exercise, um, which is an excellent coping mechanism. But if you're a runner and you get injured and you can't run and that's your only coping mechanism, all of a sudden you're you're in some trouble. And so making sure that you have multiple things that you can draw on is huge. I think that's a great point. <clears throat> multiple. I, I wouldn't have really thought about that because I always say like, oh, I exercise and that relieves a lot of stress. But yes, the second you can't, um, what are you going to do? And then what are some of the proven ways that our listeners, so a lot of them are in the oncology world, oncology medical professionals, um, which I feel like oncology is may maybe one of the fields that could probably swing even more towards burnout than others, um, but what can they do to improve their well-being? Absolutely. You know, overcoming burnout the number one most important thing is your leadership in your organization or clinic or whatever it is, because having leadership that understands that it's a big issue, that is willing to work with you on that uh, and willing to help is the number one thing that helps with work burnout. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to that identity thing. Um, I've certainly been in places where uh, my boss or supervisor or clinic manager uh, doesn't see me as an expert in my field and wants to take over and do things that they don't have experience with. And I think, well, I, I'm right here. <laughs> you know, I'm the one that has experience with this. Let's work together and, um, and do what we need to. But along those lines also is uh, teamwork. Um, and that's one thing where oncology is often one of the the uh, forerunners and compared to uh, many other medical specialties is being able to work well with colleagues of different specialties and 
and different disciplines uh, to care for the patient. Um, there are often a lot of wellness resources, and I know ENCODA has some um, that are, are excellent to take advantage of. One of the tough things with that is that when you're in the midst of severe burnout or depression or severe anxiety, the last thing you want to do is something else, <laughs> is one more thing. Yeah. So being able to uh, admit that you're struggling and work towards it is crucial. All right. Thank you. And then um, what is next for you? So I, I think I've seen something on another book recently, but do you have another book or project or what, what's coming up next? Yes, uh, my second book uh, came out two weeks ago and looking at uh, trying to come up with some funny ways to deal with, with some of the absurdities that we see. Um, oh. I have another book that's going to be published next year uh, in 2024 that uh, is called When All Hope Seems Lost, and that's aimed at uh, adolescents with uh, mental health struggles who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it takes more of a religious view. Um, and then actually my family and I are working on starting a series of children's books. Um, yeah. And so we've got a lot of things going and, you know, it's, it's just fun to me, especially writing hospital was just a blast. <laughs> and you know, sitting around the table with my kids and them throwing out funny ideas and, and it was just awesome. So it's gotten good reviews. So hopefully people will like that and try it out. But uh, Fallible also got really great reviews. And um, so please check them out. You can get them at Amazon or order them through your local independent bookstore or uh, any of those usual places. Awesome. That's that was going to be my next question is where we can find the books. So I'll link the uh, the Amazon link at least in the show notes so people can find the correct titles. And unless you have a website that you would like us to link to, then we can we can do uh, that. Amazon is fine. Uh, I do have a website, kylebradfordjones.com. So you're welcome to come okay. there too. Um, and it has links there as well. So any of those will work just fine. Awesome. And I'm excited to see the children's books. Those will be great. I did think about that when you were talking too, like, cause you said you didn't really realize things until you were older, but you know, how as parents, can we maybe pick out when our children are experiencing some of these things? So. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully we'll get there. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for sharing your story and for all of the work that you do every day. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Jones. You can find the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and on encoda.org. That's encoda.org. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.